everyone. Welcome to K-Pop Bookshelf Podcast. This podcast is where we will be exploring Korean popular culture through books. I'm the host of this podcast, Mina, and I can't wait to talk about books with you. The book that we are taking down from the bookshelf today is Kim Ji-yong, born 1982, by Cho Namju. Now, you'll have to forgive me here because the book is associated with the F-word, so now I'll be forced to say the F-word too. That's right, feminism. Although the book doesn't use the word feminism, the book created a lot of buzz in Korea and abroad because it essentially points out the inequalities that women in Korea faced and continue to face today. So many headlines were generated as a result of the book due to the reactions it provoked in people. For example, the actress who plays Kim Ji-yong in the movie adaptation, Jong Yumi, had her Instagram flooded with negative comments once it was announced that she would be playing the starring role. People cursed at her and commented asking her to step down from the role. There was even a Blue House petition. Now, the Blue House is the official resident and official office of the president of Korea. It's like the White House in the U.S. or the Pink House in Argentina. The Blue House petition was asking the government to stop production on the film. Korean celebrities who mentioned reading or liking the book, such as members of Red Velvet and Girls' Generation, faced backlash and harsh criticisms from their fans online for doing so. Despite all of this negative feedback, however, the book became the most borrowed book from Korean libraries in the year 2019, and it's also become an international bestseller, so it definitely touched a nerve for so many people. Now, if you're looking for a feel-good book or a feel-good story, this book probably isn't for you. If you're someone who's interested in equality and the fair and just treatment of people, I'm just going to warn you in advance that this book is a little bit depressing. But that said, I think it's also highly relatable for a lot of people because sadly, a lot of the concepts brought up in this book are universal issues. And if we don't identify our issues, then how can we fix them, right? So I encourage you to read this book, and if it opens your eyes to unfairness, use that as motivation to take action. You can write letters to your government representatives or to your company leaders, community leaders, whoever can help affect change. And now for a spoiler-free summary of the book. The book Kim Ji-young, born 1982, is a novel about a character named Kim Ji-young. Ji-young is a married woman in her 30s who has one small child who has been suffering from postpartum depression. Her mental illness starts to worsen, and soon she has moments where she is nothing like herself. She begins speaking about herself as though she is someone else, like her mom or her dad. She has a particularly bad episode while visiting her in-laws' family over the Korean holiday of Chuseok, where the pressures of being a good mom and wife are getting to her. We also flash back to various parts of her life where the burden of her status as a girl or woman are evident. A reader's note that this book has many footnotes containing citations for statistics about gender equality or inequality in Korea. The book contains sweeping, multi-generational stories from multiple characters, mainly her family members. Her mental illness that I mentioned earlier, which manifests in her taking on the persona of other people in her life talking about her, seemed to be saying what Jiang herself seems to want to but cannot say in her own voice. A content warning that the book and this episode discuss the following topics, mental illness, sexual harassment, postpartum issues, and abortion. 
And now let's get into the episode. Let's talk a little bit about the history of women in Korean society. During the Factory Girls episode, episode two of this podcast, we discussed the concept of Confucian patriarchy. And if you recall, under this system, men were above women in the hierarchy of Korean society. So women had to obey their fathers up until the point that they were married, and then they had to obey their husbands. And if their husbands died before them, they would have to obey their sons. And although Korea is much more modern now, even in the 20th century, there was a preference for having sons compared to having daughters. And Korea is not the only country with such a preference. China and India both have this same preference. So daughters and daughters-in-law were heavily pressured by their families to have sons, even though there was not much they could do to control this. In the Kim Ji-young book, the character of Ji-young's mother faced a lot of pressure to have a son back in the 1970s and 80s. Since then, however, Korea has become the first Asian country to reverse the trend of birthing more sons over daughters. Already, attitudes and societal preferences have changed. Another concept I mentioned during my Factory Girls episode was the use of women in the labor force during the mid-20th century, when the Korean government tried to rapidly industrialize the country from the previously agrarian country they had been. I mentioned that by the 1970s, women were being exploited as cheap labor in sweatshops and other manufacturing companies throughout Korea. A book about factory girls by the professor Ruth Barakloff, I hope I pronounced that right, from Australian National University stated, quote, by the 1980s, over a million women were commuting to factories in cities and towns all over South Korea, where they produced clothes, toys, candy, and electrical gadgets for the global market, end quote. In the book, Kim Ji-young, Ji-young's mom and aunt have to end their education early, move to another town, and work as garment factory workers in order to put their brothers, who are Ji-young's uncles, through college. Although they also have hopes and dreams to further their education and better their lives, their parents take their earnings from the factory to ensure that the boys of the family become educated. The girls are just expected to get married, have kids, and they end up never completing or furthering their education or reach their own career. Your dreams. I have an anecdote about the 50,000 Korean won banknote, which might help to illustrate the way some modern Koreans feel about the role of women in Korean society. And this is, of course, not everyone's view, but I think it helps illustrate what some women want to see reflected back to them from their government and their society. A Korea Times article stated, quote, in 2007, Shin Sa Im Tang, a female artist during the Chosun Kingdom, was chosen as the model for its new denomination banknote on the 50,000 won banknote. Shin is the mother of the renowned Confucian scholar Yi Yi, who is portrayed on the 5,000 won banknote. On top of being an exemplary mother and wife, she is lauded as a talented female artist representing the Chosun Kingdom. She was good at painting, poetry, and calligraphy and left many artworks. Some progressive women's rights groups opposed Shin as a banknote model, saying she was not an appropriate model for modern women. The Bank of Korea should have been more careful in selecting figures for the banknote models. Shin is not a good choice, said an official from the Korean National Council of Women. Shin Saim Dang was a typical role model for women under the Confucian patriarchal system, not for modern women. End quote. So as you can see, even in recent Korean history, women who worked outside the home still had the expectation of living up to the ideal wife and mother per Confucianism. Now that we've looked at some of the historical aspects of being a woman in Korea, let's move on to the topics that impact the life of the character Kim Ji-yong in modern Korean society. One of the first concepts we encounter in this book is the concept of housework and shared division of labor. The book begins over the Chuseok holiday, 
This is a three-day harvest holiday often referred to as Korean Thanksgiving. This holiday is notoriously stressful for those women married into traditional Korean families. There's quite a lot of cooking and cleaning that daughters-in-law may be expected to do. There are also certain ancestral rites that are traditionally performed to honor the dead, which involve visiting the grave sites of dead relatives and performing certain rituals. Kim Ji-young and her family drive from Seoul to her in-law's house in Busan for Chuseok. Ji-young feels as though she is expected to sacrifice her own rest, enjoyment, and time with her own parents in order to attend to her husband's family. Although she doesn't complain and she's grateful that, unlike her sister-in-law, she does not have to perform all the ancestral rites. She is not very comfortable and she's missing her own family. And now, like, maybe this doesn't sound like that big of a deal for something that occurs only once a year. I mean, Thanksgiving in America is also a notoriously stressful time for a lot of families, probably also primarily women for some families, Christmas as well. But an article in the Straits Times describes. Quote, daughters-in-law, in particular, suffer so much stress and hardship during the festival that some of them develop the so-called post-holiday syndrome. They complain of backache and muscle pain from all the chores and emotional strain arising from conflicts with demanding mothers-in-law exacerbated by the seemingly unsympathetic husbands, end quote. I want to point out that this Chuseok experience is not the same for everyone as some families are less traditional than others. Some families have also moved towards a more modern type of Chuseok celebration where they eat restaurant food, for example, instead of cooking elaborate meals. But this brings about the concept of the expectation that housework is to be done by women. There are no demands for cooking and cleaning that are imposed on the men or the boys for this holiday. Now, a lot of work that's done from home is often not considered as real work, but actually cooking, cleaning, caring for small children, these are physically really demanding tasks, and they don't just get done by themselves. It feels like a double-edged sword at times that most of the world allows women to work outside of the home now, but that women are still the ones responsible for doing the bulk of the housework as well. I find this to be unfair because the benefits of a clean home, prepared foods, and well-raised children are enjoyed by everyone who lives in the house, not just the mother, or female caregivers. One article I read stated that, quote, South Korean men believe husbands and wives should share housework fairly, but tend to actually leave most of it to their wives, recent numbers show, end quote. That same article also states, quote, the percentage arguing for equal division of labor has been rising steadily, although a majority of 54.6% still believe housework should be mainly the wife's responsibility, and 7% said the responsibility is, quote, fully the wife's, end quote. A New York Times article from 2019 cited a statistic that men in Japan do fewer hours of household chores and childcare than in any of the world's wealthiest nations at the time. And I should mention that Korea was the country where men did the least housework in 2015 based on OECD studies. The New York Times article also cited research that showed, quote, women in Japan who work more than 49 hours a week typically do close to 25 hours of housework a week. Their husbands do an average of less than five, end quote. They quote the researcher Noriko Osuya as saying, quote, compared with what happened in women's employment, there has been so little change or a lack thereof in gender relations at home, end quote. In the U.S., a Gallup poll from January 2020 showed that young men from the ages of 18 through 24 were not any more likely than their older counterparts to have an equal division of labor at home. The New York Times, in a different article, states, quote, Women now do a little less housework and childcare, and men do a little more. But a significant gap remains. Women spend about an hour more a day than men on housework and an hour more on childcare, other research shows, end quote. 
So I bring up the situation in Japan and the U.S. to point out that in many so-called advanced countries, not only in Korea, the imbalance of housework remains, despite other progress in women's rights also being made. At one point in the book, Jiang thinks to herself, quote, Oppa, meaning her husband, knows more about housework from living by himself for years, and he said he'd take care of everything when we got married, end quote. Jiang is thinking about the fact that her husband made certain promises to her when they first got married about helping her out at home. And he actually is pretty helpful. He manages his own post-work meal when he gets home. He doesn't really ask all that much of her. You know, he's pretty affable. He's a nice guy. He treats her well. He means well. He intends to help her. But at the same time, older relatives will judge her housework and cooking abilities, and his abilities are not judged in the same way. Another concept described in the book is women in the workplace and discrimination. As I previously mentioned, women had been part of the Korean workforce in the manufacturing sector especially since the mid-20th century. By the late 20th century, the Korean government assessed a need for legislation to ensure certain rights and protections for working women. In 1987, Korea adopted the Act on Equal Employment and Support for Work Family Reconciliation. Article 1 of this legislation states, quote, The purpose of this act is to realize gender equality in employment in accordance with the principle of equality proclaimed in the Constitution of the Republic of Korea by ensuring equal opportunities and treatment in employment between men and women, and protecting maternity and promoting female employment, and to contribute to the improvement of all of the people's quality of life by supporting the reconciliation of work and family life for workers, end quote. Additional pieces of legislation that Korea passed in order to address gender discrimination and the unfair treatment of women in society include the Mother-Child Welfare Act of 1991 and the 1993 Punishment of Sexual Violence and Protection of the Victim Act, among others. But despite this legislation, Korean women still face discrimination, including within the workplace. In the Kim Ji-young book, examples of this discrimination includes Ji-young and others being passed over for promotion because they're women of childbearing age. There's this assumption that women of a certain age, like, you know, in their mid-20s to mid-30s, essentially, will just get married and become pregnant anyway. So what's the point of promoting them? Or what's the point of giving them an important responsibility where they can excel and succeed. There's a thinking that women will likely either decide to quit on their own to better look after their children or end up being so distracted by their home lives that their work assignments will suffer. Another workplace discrimination topic mentioned in the book is the wage gap between men and women. Korea has a high gender wage gap among developed countries according to the OECD. The OECD, which I previously cited as well, is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. It's an international organization that studies and publishes information about many countries. Their 2017 findings show that Korea had the highest wage gap by gender among the 11 member countries who were surveyed. In 2017, the gender wage gap in Korea was 37.2%. And for comparison, that same year, the OECD found that the U.S. gender wage gap was 18.9%. The thing that I personally find so unfair about the gender wage gap is that it's just arbitrary and it doesn't make any sense. Now, Korea is a highly educated country. Both men and women pursue higher education at high rates. So what this essentially means is that some people with the same qualifications and the same responsibilities as their colleagues doing the exact same tasks are not being compensated as much as their counterparts. And that's based purely on gender. And for sure, Korea is not the only developed country with a gender pay gap issue. It's not like the U.S. has a 0% gender pay gap. The book describes scenes where Jiang and her husband are planning out, before their baby is born, how childcare will work in their household. 
Ultimately, they decide that ji has to be the one to be the stay-at-home parent because her husband earns more than she does. It doesn't make economic sense for her to be the one to stay at work and for him to be the one at home. The fact that there is a gender age gap, that that even exists, means that ji doesn't have a fighting chance of being the one to lobby to stay home or to make some sort of negotiations with her husband where it's like, okay, for the first two years, I'll stay home. And then for the next two years, you stay home. And then we send them to kindergarten or something like that. And I imagine that this type of scenario is fairly common. And so just like her own mother, ji ends up having to put her own career dreams and passions on hold, this time in order to care for her child rather than to support her brothers. Although her husband seemed willing to be the stay-at-home parent, the scales just tipped in her direction based on the fact that she earns a lesser wage than her husband. There's a host of other topics surrounding being a woman in the workplace that the book touches upon. For those who become pregnant, if they take maternity leave, according to the book, it can lead to bad feelings amongst work colleagues who think that women are somehow being given preferential treatment for being allowed to, for example, come in late or leave late. But ji in her mind is like, guys, I'm coming in late and leaving late so that I still work the same hours as you and I'm doing it so that I don't get crushed to death with my huge pregnant belly on the subway by the subway rush hour crowd. And although men can take paternity leave, the book leaves the impression that this is not something that they super commonly do. A Korea Herald article from 2015 states that, quote, but the parental leave appears to put Koreans' careers at risk, with only 59.6% of those taking the paid leave returning to their original workplaces, the data showed, end quote. Now, that article didn't elaborate on if the workplaces aren't taking their former employees back for some reason or what reason these employees didn't return, whether that 59.6% was primarily women workers or if some of them were men. But based on the legislation that was passed in the 80s and 90s, one would have to hope that it's not due to the workplaces declining to take them back. But on the other hand, based on how people are looked down upon or people think that they're like gaming the system by taking maternity leave or paternity leave or whatever, maybe people feel pressured to not come back. They feel may be unwelcomed. Now, the book came out in Korea in 2016, and in 2019, it was reported by the Korea's Ministry of Employment and Labor that men taking paternity leave went up 26.2% in 2019. And I'm so glad that this is changing because taking care of kids is a ton of work, seriously. The more people who are able to take care of them on a day-to-day basis, the better. There are several more concepts to get into with this book, and we will get to it in part two of this episode. In part two, along with more context about this book, I will also be joined by my friend, and we will be discussing the Kim Ji-yong, born 1982 movie, starring Gong Yu and Jung Yumi. They were both in Train to Busan together, so if you saw that movie, you'll see them reunite here. Be sure to subscribe or follow this podcast so you don't miss it. And as a reminder, you can reach me on social media, on Instagram and Twitter. You can also email me at kpopbookshelfpod at gmail.com. That's pod like podcast. Be sure to check out my blog to see the sources I used for researching this episode. The links in my bio and show notes will take you there. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please tell a friend about this podcast. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye.